This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Richard Dennis. Richard is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute based in Canberra. He joined me to talk about the state of Australia's economy now that we're in a recession, as well as the national accounts and the fate of the JobKeeper and JobSeeker programs in this time of coronavirus. This interview was conducted on July 28, 2020. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show someone who is not in Victoria and probably lucky for him at the moment is Dr. Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, which is based up in Canberra. And uh, Dr. Richard Dennis is joining us again to talk about the economic situation in Australia and where we stand, what things are likely to look like based on the settings that the government has announced. And of course, they haven't announced everything. They've said that there is more to come, but it is quite further down the track than a lot of people would like. We're also going to look at JobKeeper and JobSeeker and those announcements. Maybe we'll first up welcome Richard and also we'll dive into what is on a lot of people's minds in economics at the moment, which is uh, the cost of a life. So uh, welcome, Richard, and thank you so much for joining us again. Good morning. Now, Richard, a lot of people in Victoria, and myself included, are particularly concerned about the increase of coronavirus cases in uh, aged care settings. And it's certainly no surprise, as I said at the top of the show, that aged care settings are a high-risk area. It was something that happened in the UK and uh, over in Europe, 50% of deaths in that early period of the coronavirus were elderly residents in aged care settings. So that's something that potentially Australia would have anticipated. But it has kind of opened up discussions about the value of life and whether each life is of equal value and just how important life is in comparison to, say, the economy. And we're kind of getting these interesting comparisons between uh, jobs and and so-called future suicides because of a recession and comparing that to our strong public health response now and whether it is currently warranted and whether the lockdown settings are too harsh a measure. Now, that's not really something that I buy into, but I'm really interested in this economic argument and how and why it's kind of come to the fore right now, given we're seeing so many, tragically, um, deaths of people in their elderly age, of course, but also just recently we have seen at least one 40-year-old pass away in Victoria from coronavirus. So I'm just wondering about that economic argument. What is the argument that it seems a lot of economists might be having, or at least a few of them, uh, in the media at the moment? Uh, well, well, let's be clear. There's, there's always been economists that thought it was better to cause climate change than to fix it. There's always been economists that think it's better uh, to let poor people die of infectious disease and prevent it. So we shouldn't be surprised that some economists currently think that we should let the virus rip because it will only kill people who aren't them. Um, now, you know, that's okay. It's a, it's a free country. It's a democracy. And, you know, we certainly have the freedom to say whatever we want. Uh, the, the issue is what's that got to do with economics uh, and what's that got to do with health policy and, and what's that got to do with the economy? So, 
you know, it's tricky because economists and, and, and the public, we, we do put a value on human life. There's no doubt that we do. Um, uh, we say things like, you know, we'll, we'll do everything we can to, to save people uh, in a flood or a bushfire, but we don't do everything we can to prevent infectious disease. We, we don't do everything we can uh, to, to, to rescue someone who's lost in the bush. And at some point, we decide, oh, we've, we've probably spent about enough. So as a society, we, we do have to make hard choices about uh, what we do and what we don't do. But uh, that's, those hard choices are complicated, they're nuanced, they're usually made quite slowly, uh, but what we're witnessing now with COVID is is a very extreme and I think very dangerous version of uh, of sort of economic analysis on the run, with some economists running around saying, "Well, according to my back of the envelope calculation, rather than save tens of thousands of lives, I think it would be better to just let the virus rip and see how it plays out." Uh, and and these views are being taken seriously. I mean, uh, imagine, let's let's take COVID out of the equation and, and say someone was plotting a terrorist attack on Australia that could kill tens of thousands of people. Um, how much would we spend to stop that? Um, you know, we we as a society have to confront our choices, but to to just run around saying, "Oh, it's cheaper to let people die," and to be taken seriously, I I think it's uh, well, I think it's startling, but it's it's also a nice example of of how bad economic analysis can be used to inform public debate. Yes, exactly. And um, we did see in a similar vein uh, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, reference in his speech at the National Press Club last week a discussion about a suppression strategy versus an elimination strategy. And he does bring up Treasury's modelling about what each strategy um, would do. And he kind of hints at this trade-off. He says that a strict elimination strategy would cripple our economy and require us to shut down many more sectors and not allow anyone to enter the country. Treasury, using OECD estimates of the economic impact of full lockdowns, suggests a six-week Australia-wide hard lockdown could reduce GDP by around $50 billion. This is what at stake... In contrast, we've shown that an aggressive suppression strategy targeting low or no community transmission can be effective when implemented well. It seems like he there is kind of hinting at, very strongly, uh, a kind of trade-off and what the government is willing to trade off and what they're not willing to trade off based on the cost to GDP. What is the Treasurer really saying when he's talking about the decision about an elimination or a suppression strategy in these economic terms? Well, look, well, firstly, so, you know, New Zealand has, for all intents and purposes, eliminated COVID-19. So uh, we shouldn't pretend that it's impossible. Western Australia has effectively eliminated the virus. And I think two months ago, a lot of people, including a lot of people in the federal government, thought that we could eliminate it in Australia as well. Um, so, so elimination obviously refers to eliminating the disease within within Australia, and suppression means keeping it so low that it's it's really not a, a major public health problem. But what we've found out is that when you attempt to suppress and fail, 
what you actually get is these big flare-ups that we're seeing in Victoria at the moment, whereas with an elimination strategy, it says, look, just just keep going, just crack down hard when, whenever you get the chance. Now, um, just to be clear, no one knows what the right thing to do is. No one knows. And the problem with things like treasury modelling is that it conjures up all sorts of science and certainty about the future and about the trade-offs. But we don't know. We have no idea whether a vaccine will be invented in three months, three years or never. We don't know. No one at Treasury knows that. Uh, We don't know if the virus will evolve. No one at Treasury knows that. We have no idea, absolutely no idea, uh, how many people might die if we let the virus rip. None. So the problem, the word modelling, unfortunately, is is being has, for so long in Australia has been used so uncritically to suggest precision and certainty in science that we we don't actually put the hard word on politicians or the Treasury official claiming to have conducted this modelling exercise. We don't put the hard word on them to be honest about what they have absolutely no idea about. So, uh, so you know, there are hard choices that we need to make. Should we have hard border closures between all states or should we uh, allow people to travel between states that have very, very small numbers of cases? There's no economic way to answer that question. Uh, And and even the public health officials will have slightly different answers there. Um, We just have to keep using our judgment. But when we talk about modelling, of course, we can suspend judgment. We can pretend that the black box tells us what to do. Well, the black box can't tell us what to do because we've never been in this situation before. Uh, We have no idea what's about to happen. Uh, we just need our our delegated decision makers, that is our elected members of parliament, to use the best available decisions, uh, to use the best available info to make the decisions that they think are right. And then we have to hold them democratically accountable for those decisions. Exactly. Yeah, that is the situation. And um, I know that a, a lot of people are concerned about the federal government and I guess the state settings, as you just mentioned, there are different border situations at the moment and um, everyone's kind of quarantining Victoria off and hoping that we can get our stuff together and um, hopefully get this under control. But it does, in an economic sense, bring up some issues around having very different economic situations in different states as well, depending on the coronavirus situation and whether, in fact, as Daniel Andrews, the Premier, says... Victoria may have to extend this lockdown and or close down certain industries where we are seeing outbreaks. What are some of the economic or potential economic concerns or effects that, you know, having these very different situations in states could bring up? Uh, Well, well, firstly, we are a federation of states. Our constitution is quite clear that state premiers and state ministers are responsible, responsible for a wide range of services, including health. So, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a a media fiction that that the federal government should be in charge of coordinated national policy. Uh, They can play a role, but it's actually constitutionally clearly the state's responsibilities to do a lot of these things. So we shouldn't be surprised by the 
predictable. Um, secondly, uh, just as the Northern Territory has quite different policies on a whole range of things to New South Wales or Tasmania uh, when it comes to health and education and uh, and transport policy, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that, that states with entirely different situations in relation to COVID-19 uh, are making quite different decisions. So uh, I, I don't quite understand why people crave uniformity so much, but I think we should all do ourselves a favour and just expect that different state premiers and different uh, state health officials are going to recommend different courses of action at different points in time. It, it's inevitable and I think it's desirable. Um, does it have an impact on the national economy? Of course, but let, let me just mess with your head here for a second. There's no such thing as the national economy. There is no national economy that the federal government is in charge of. The national economy is purely the sum of its parts. If you add up the GDP of all of our states and territories, you get national GDP. So again, we have this kind of bizarre fiction in our public debate as if the federal government's in charge of the federal economy or the national economy and the state government's in charge of the state economy. There's no such thing. So, of course, when the Victorian government makes responsible decisions to look after Victorians and it has an impact on the Victorian economy, of course that has consequences for the national economy and, of course, it has consequences for other state economies. But that is not Scott Morrison's job. Like, we, we, we talk so much about economic management that we never have to ask anyone what on earth it means. So, you know, what, what is Scott Morrison managing when he's managing the national economy? Well, he's managing the sum of all the state economies. And if all the state premiers do a good job, Scott Morrison will look like he's done a good job. And if all the state premiers do a bad job, Scott Morrison will look like he's done a bad job. That's what's going on here. It's some blame shifting. Scott Morrison wants to blame Australia's unemployment rate and Australia's GDP rate on, on Daniel Andrews. And, you know, he's he's doing a good job of it. But there, <laughs> there, there's no national economy lever for Scott Morrison to pull right now. I'm interested in the um, lever that they have been pulling up until recently, and I guess they will somewhat continue to, is uh, the two watchwords of the moment, job keeper and job seeker. And we had been waiting quite a while to find out the fate of these two programs. Of course, JobKeeper is a, a more temporary program and uh, had not been something that Australia had seen prior to coronavirus. But of course, JobSeeker is really the term for what was New Start and what is termed by some people the dole. And so we did finally see an announcement last Tuesday about these two things that the government, the federal government, does have. Uh, control over. And I think it was interesting to see what their thoughts were, particularly given the coronavirus situation that we don't really have it under control yet in Australia. It was interesting to see that they were extending it to some extent, certainly JobKeeper, but not for too long. It still does have an end date, just an extended one. Could you explain to us what the government's thinking might be around um, why they are actually cutting spending in terms of JobKeeper and JobSeeker? 
given that the economy is in recession and uh, coronavirus is not under control, what is the rationale, economic rationale for that? <laughs> well, I, I wish there was one. Um, <laughs> there is no economic rationale. There, there's a political rationale. So, uh, so yeah, look, you're spot on. So let, let's, let's describe clearly what's going on at the moment. In Australia, gross domestic product, GDP, total amount of stuff that's produced, uh, the total amount of stuff that's produced in Australia uh, is, is, is falling. That's what, what it means to be in a recession. We're making less stuff now than we were this time three months ago and we were this time last year. So we're used to the economy growing, you're at economic growth all the time. Well, we're actually in economic decline at the moment. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. And we calculate GDP by, again, adding up the composite parts. What are the composite parts of GDP that we focus on here? Well, there's consumer spending, there's private sector investment, there's government spending and there's exports, net exports. They're the four things that when you add them up, you get GDP. Just like when you add up all the state economies, you get the national economy. When you add up those four categories of spending, you get gross domestic product. Well, we know consumer spending is falling. Why? Well, because people are losing their jobs, people are scared of losing their jobs, and population growth is lower than it's ever been. So consumer spending is down. Um, exports are down. Why? Because there is no tourism industry at the moment. There's no or very little inbound education uh, in terms of foreign students coming here to study. That counts as an export. Uh, and, of course, the rest of the world economy has gone into recession and we sell our exports to them. So Australian consumer spending down, exports are down, Private investment is down. Why? Well, because the reason people build bigger factories or bigger shops is because they think they're going to sell more stuff. Well, if your domestic consumers are buying less and your foreign consumers are buying less, why would you build another factory? So, again, consumer spending down, uh, private investment spending down, net exports down. Literally the only thing propping up the economy at the moment, the only thing that grew in the first half of this year was government spending. The only thing that, that actually expanded in our economy was government spending. That's why we haven't seen unemployment go a lot higher. That's why so many, uh, so, so much of the economy is doing better than people thought it would. But now the government is literally promising literally promising to cut government spending in the second half of this year. So the only thing that kept the economy from, from contracting, from collapsing catastrophically, was an increase in government spending. Now they're promising to cut it. Now, you ask me what the rationale for that is. Well, I've, I've no idea. You really can't find an economist in the country that disagrees with the idea that increasing government spending will lead to an increase in GDP and stop the unemployment rate rising so fast. The only reason the government is cutting government spending is, is politics. It's symbolism. The government has spent so long saying that debt is bad and deficits are a sign of poor economic management, brackets, they're not, uh, but they've spent so long saying that that they're now under political pressure to, to perform budget cuts, not for an economic reason, but for a symbolic reason. And, and there's no better symbol, of course, for conservatives than cutting spending on poor people. 
So in the middle of a recession with 1.6 million people on unemployment benefits, we're going to cut the benefits of that 1.6 million people for symbolic purposes. And, you know, that's that's just the way we roll in Australia. Gosh, it is um, nonsensical to say the least. One of the things that was kind of surprising, I think, when I was reading about the figures of what the cost of JobKeeper is and has been essentially over six months up until September, which was the initial period of JobKeeper, it's expected to cost about $70 billion. But the following six months, it'll cost far, far less. And we saw uh, Ross Gittins mention in his piece it could reduce the additional cost of JobKeeper to less than $4 billion by slashing the JobKeeper supplement, so reducing that rate that people will actually receive and uh, people won't be receiving the same amount that they had been, a lot of uh, workers who are on JobKeeper at the moment. And I know we did talk about JobKeeper last time and the discussion around it not being optimal in terms of its targets and um, and it certainly had room to improve. What are your thoughts on the tweaks and changes that the government has made on JobKeeper and do you think that that has made any improvement to the situation? Well, yes, you're right. I mean, well, just firstly on, on JobSeeker, according mm. to modelling done by the Australia Institute, uh, the cuts to the JobSeeker supplement we'll see more than 300,000 people plunged below the poverty line. 300,000 people will live below the poverty line because of that decision. And as you say, that cut in spending will will have flow-on effects that will cause more unemployment. So that cut in spending will impoverish 300,000 people, literally, and it will cause unemployment because those people are all going to be spending less money in the local shops. So that's mm-hmm. unambiguous. Um, in terms of JobKeeper, yeah, you're right, it's trickier because it's, it's, a, it's a new idea, that form of wage subsidy. Uh, the one that was introduced by the government was developed quite quickly. It was very broad. Um, in principle, I don't have any problem with the government uh, looking around to make sure that companies, let's talk about this, their whole thing has been to give money to business because giving money to business will trickle down and help you and I. Uh, if there are businesses that are receiving JobKeeper uh, who don't need it because they're actually getting enough revenue from their customers to keep their staff employed, uh, then I see absolutely no problem with, with cutting JobKeeper. But uh, that doesn't seem to be the rationale for the government's changes. So, you know, let's go back to the beginning. The government decided to exempt everyone on a temporary work visa from receiving JobKeeper. That had nothing to do with economics the government decided to exclude all casuals who hadn't been in the same workplace for 12 months from receiving JobKeeper. That had nothing to do with economics. Uh, Now they're coming up with a bunch of new thresholds, uh, some of which are around ensuring that businesses aren't getting money they don't need. Uh, but many of the new cutoffs uh, are just as arbitrary and just as capricious as the original ones. So, part of you know, there's parts of JobKeeper should be getting expanded right now. There's still no economic reason to exclude people on temporary visas. None. It's not economics. It's politics. 
so I think we should be expanding parts of JobKeeper, uh, and yeah, we should be reining it in where it's no longer necessary. But so, so I don't think we can have a question or can't have a conversation about is reining in JobKeeper good or bad. Uh, reining in some parts of it is good. We should be expanding parts of it. Yes, exactly. And it's important to recall that the government had budgeted for far more spent on JobKeeper originally. As we recall, um, there was a $60 billion difference in what they had expected. So their preparedness to spend more was certainly alive earlier this year. I do want to ask about uh, something that is very important to us here at Triple R, particularly just heading back to Job Seeker, which is, of course, the unemployment benefit or allowance. And you mentioned that over 300,000 would be thrown back into poverty because of the cut of the supplement from $550 to $250 a fortnight, which cuts out 300 in the supplement. Um, and we already know that. Uh, job seeker was really, really low and we were calling for an increase for many, many years. And of course, that supplement does have an end date too in this plan. Um, So that's another concern for so many people is that it will be wound up after December. Um, Of course, it seems like the economy and uh, the, the amount of unemployment won't be resolved by December. So I'm wondering in terms of the job seeker supplement and the role that it's played in the economy, I did note that similar figures from the Australia Institute suggested that having that coronavirus supplement of $550 actually lifted 400,000 Australians out of poverty um, initially. And so it had a a great positive effect and that it also, as you've noted in your Guardian article last week, saw uh, June employment numbers increase by record amounts. It was the largest monthly increase in Australian history of over 200,000 jobs. So I'm wondering when we're looking at the effectiveness of of things like stimulus in the form of the the job seeker supplement why would the government wind back something that seems to be one of the greatest policy initiatives they've ever introduced? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Scott Morrison lifted more people out of poverty, more people out of poverty in one fell swoop with increasing the uh, the job seeker supplement than, than than any prime minister in Australian history. But unfortunately, he's about to plunge more people straight back <laughs> into poverty uh, by making a very the, the opposite decision, and that is to significantly cut it. So. You know, this is this is you know come back to the first point about you know the economics of this, the modelling of this versus the politics of this. If you wanted to stimulate the economy, if that was the one thing you wanted to do, if you wanted to pump money into the economy, the number one easiest way to do that is to increase the disposable income of the poorest people in the country. They're not going to save a cent of it. And they're not going to spend a lot of it on imported luxury goods. They're not. Helping the poorest people in the country right now will simultaneously help landlords because they'll be able to keep paying their rent and it will help the banks by avoiding avoiding an enormous number of uh, mortgage defaults. And and actually right now, the last thing any of us need is, is for the banks to be in real trouble. So... If we wanted to spend money to help the economy and create jobs, the easiest, most effective thing you could do would be to keep 
the job seeker supplement in place. Oh, and by the way, it's probably about the fairest thing you could do because the people bearing the brunt of this recession are, not surprisingly, the unemployed. So it's pretty rare that you get the opportunity to do the best thing from a macroeconomic point of view and the fairest thing from a distributional point of view. It's pretty rare that they line up as neatly as this. Mm. But because because politics trumps economics in Australia every single time, I must admit it it does my head in when I hear people, uh, particularly progressives, say the problem with conservatives is they're obsessed with the economy. No, they're not. They're obsessed with the economy. They'd help the poor. If they're obsessed with the economy, we'd have free childcare. If they're obsessed with the economy, they wouldn't spend five hundred million dollars on a war memorial. They'd spend it uh, helping women re-enter the labour market. So there's no evidence, none, that that conservative governments are obsessed with the economy. That's just the story they tell. So they can perform the symbolic function of cutting the incomes of the poor uh, to, to to get their voter base to sort of you know see see where their priorities lie. So yeah, it's it's devastating for the economy to cut the job seeker supplement. It's devastating for the individuals. It'll have huge and lasting income and health effects and equity effects. Um, but again, to be clear, it's got nothing to do with the economy. Uh, of all the things to spend a few billion dollars on. Uh, in an environment where we're spending hundreds of billions of extra dollars, of all the things to spend a few billion dollars on, uh, I think retaining the job seeker supplement is the most obvious. Yes, and with 1.6 million people projected to be unemployed by the end of the year, it's interesting. I wonder whether um, there is really any other policy lever or situation in the economy that's actually going to boost and create more jobs enough to lift people out of this poverty, given that the job seeker supplements seem to have been so effective in actually creating jobs. Look, it has been, and, and I guess, you know, that's Scott Morrison's genius, is that six months into this crisis, really, and there's no plan from the Prime Minister for how to create jobs, none whatsoever. There's no plan from this Prime Minister about uh, what what industries that he wants to support. There's no plan from this Prime Minister about uh, how in the next couple of years when there's going to be hundreds of thousands of young people who won't be able to find jobs, uh, what customised measures he's going to take to ensure that, you know, that they're actually getting years of extra free education rather than years of extra unemployment breaches for not filling out enough applications for jobs they won't get. So let's be clear, it's genius. It's absolute political genius that six months into this crisis, the Prime Minister's complete lack of plan to create jobs uh, and to provide meaningful assistance to those who lack jobs uh, isn't an issue. Daniel Andrews is the issue. The state premiers are the issue. The Chinese are the issue. Everyone's the issue, except the guy who said, vote for me because I'm a genius economic manager. Okay, Scott, what's your plan? I mean it, what's your plan? What are you going to do? Because we're six months into this and we've been cutting him some slack for quite some time now Mm. and he made, you know, big decisions early on and, you know, we had to move quick, so cut us some slack. Okay, well, it's six months. Where's the plan? We're now being told, oh, wait for the budget in October. Well, why do we have to wait two more months? Yes, exactly. (laughs) 
Well, uh, it's interesting that the only kind of vague plan or intimation of a plan is that the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg will take inspiration from Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in a move of back to the 80s, but it seems quite confusing as to why he would raise these people as um, points of inspiration with no real substance behind why. Uh, Because, again, politics trumps economics in Australia. This is about symbolism. Like he's he's Mm. saying to the people who aren't affected by the recession, who he thinks are more likely to vote for him, uh, you know, I haven't lost my way here. It might look like I spent some money on poor people who aren't you. It might look like I became a bit Keynesian there and in opposition to everything I've stood for my whole life. But watch this. This will, you know, watch, watch, watch me puff my chest up and quote Thatcher and Reagan. Like I'm, 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 I'm still the Josh Frydenberg you thought I was. I just, <laughs> I just spent two hundred billion dollars. I said I wouldn't spend. So, oh, this again. This has nothing to do with economics. That's the trap that yeah. people fall into. You know, Thatcher didn't do a great job of reducing unemployment. Thatcher didn't set Britain up for golden years. You know, what, what's what's to be learnt from her? Yes, I'm not quite sure. One of the issues it's also seemed is that we've had a very strong fixation on debt and deficit for decades now here in Australia, particularly the coalition government. But of course, even Labor has bought into this idea of a surplus um, being absolutely necessary to prove one's economic credentials. And we did see the government on Thursday release their kind of accounts and um, look at the budget deficit, quote unquote, from the last financial year being $86 billion and uh, the deficit projections, which, as you've um, suggested, is uh, obviously not going to be a precise science, but the government is forecasting a deficit of $184 billion in the forthcoming financial year. Why are we getting very caught up and fixated on deficit in the situation we find ourselves in, in a recession? Because it's not just the government that's been fixated on this, it's been the reporting of it and even commentary about it has been very, very uh, fearful and kind of obsessive about these figures. No, absolutely. Oh, well, again, sorry, broken record today. It's you know, it's politics, <laughs> not economics. Back back when I was studying economics, macroeconomics was a complicated thing, and we learnt that there were all sorts of really impossible trade-offs, trade-offs between balance in the labour market, uh, balance in the finance market, balance in the international markets. That uh, uh, you know, you wanted price stability, you wanted low unemployment, you wanted a current account balance, uh, all, you know, all sorts of things. Ma- managing the macro economy used to be considered quite complicated, uh, and then this guy called Peter Costello came along and said, "Nah, that's all rubbish. If I deliver a budget surplus, I'm good at this job." And as luck would have it, I want to privatise a bunch of assets. And when selling assets, I get an enormous one-off boost to revenue, so I get a budget surplus. So Costello, you know, again, credit where credit's due, did a wonderful job of entirely reshaping Australian public debate about economics by saying, don't blame me for unemployment, uh, blame the workers. Don't blame me for inflation, blame the workers with greedy pay rises. Don't blame me for a current account deficit. Uh, That's because people are buying too much imports. I'm only responsible for the budget, and if I'm delivering a budget surplus, I'm a great treasurer. Well, you know, okay. (laughs) 
It's like saying uh, if, if if I only crash my car once a week, I'm a great driver. If I'm in charge of defining success, it's not hard to achieve success. So basically ever since Peter Costello, we've actually believed that the main thing the government has to do is deliver a budget surplus. And that's not economically true. It's never been economically true. Uh, Donald Trump certainly didn't agree with that. George Bush didn't agree with that. Margaret Thatcher didn't agree with that. These people ran enormous budget deficits. Mm. So, yeah, look, you know, it's... I know it sounds ridiculous to say this, but, you know, I I am an economist and there's a whole bunch of economics that anyone can go and read out there. The idea that delivering a budget surplus is the be-all and end-all of economic management is a complete fiction that's a pretty new idea and it's not really popular outside of Australia. It's just not. Look at Donald Trump. I mean, he's delivering a trillion-dollar deficit, a trillion-dollar deficit. Uh, so yeah, it's you know the internet does exist. People, other countries are there. Go have a look at what's happening in their countries. Um, um, our debate, our debate about budget surpluses is weird. Yes, yes, very surreal. Just finally, Richard, I did want to ask and pick up on Peter Costello, which um, it does take me back. And uh, I know that so many people remember the baby bonus. And one lever that did come up in the National Press Club address and question and answer section was talking about increasing population. And um, it's certainly something that I know a lot of women uh, of childbearing age found rather amusing or, and in some ways condescending, was the suggestion that perhaps they should just have more babies to increase the tax base because uh, we are seeing a decline, supposedly, in our baby rate or making babies. And there was a huge kind of flurry of people writing and talking about women having more babies in this uh, current economic situation. And of course, a number of women raising the point that free childcare has now disappeared. I'm just wondering, what do you think about that uh, su- suggestion? Oh, look, it's, it's weird for so many reasons. Uh, if the number of people uh, was the main determinant of the strength of an economy, then, you know, everyone in China and India would be rich and mm. people in, in Monaco and Switzerland would be poor. So step one is there's no actual causal link between the number of babies we have and, and the wealth of our ourselves or our nation. That's just made up, again, it's a nice conservative signal to send. Plenty mm. of conservatives out there like women staying home having lots of kids. So, you know, well done, Josh Frydenberg. But it's got nothing to do with the economy. Um, and secondly, yeah, even if you thought, and there's no evidence to back it up, but even if you thought that the best thing we could do to help the economy was to uh, have more babies, then, yeah, you, you'd think that free childcare would be at the, at, the, at the top of the to-do list. But, of course, this same government... Uh, introduced that and then just just ripped it away again recently. So, uh, yeah, look, the, the trick is to just not believe that everything happens because of the economy. It's the economy is used an excuse by powerful people to do anything they want. Mm. You know, and if you want to give a tax cut to someone, say it's good for the economy. If you, if you, want, to, if you want to cut unemployment benefits to someone else, say that's good for the economy. You know, you, 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 want, you want people to have more babies, tell them it's good for the economy. You want to get rid of free childcare, tell them it's good for the economy. People just have to learn to see through this nonsense. Yes, and thank you very much for helping us see through the nonsense, Richard. It's been very <laughs> valuable as usual. Uh, thank you so much for Anytime. joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Pete.
I've been speaking with Dr. Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and we've been talking about the Australian economy and, uh, of course, the many issues that we face at the moment economically and socially and uh, the government announcements last week around JobKeeper, JobSeeker and the government figures. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Deakin University philosopher and lecturer, Dr. Matthew Sharp. Matthew joined me to talk about how Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism can help us get through the lockdown and COVID-19 pandemic. You are tuned into Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm delighted to have with me Matthew Sharp, who is an Associate Professor in Philosophy at Deakin University, and we're going to be talking all about how Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism can help us get through this pandemic. And of course, many people who are currently based in metropolitan Melbourne and Mitchell Shire will also be experiencing a pretty significant lockdown. And um, we're pretty much almost at the halfway mark of a six-week lockdown. So certainly um, that's another factor for us in our discussion today. And uh, Matthew covers a wide range of philosophical theories and ideas in his career, and certainly Stoicism is just one of those. But I welcome Matthew now. Thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Thanks, Amy. Good to be here. It's great to chat again. And I know last time we got into some pretty heavy content and it was, I think it was about February, which was when coronavirus wasn't really as big as it is now. Uh, obviously, it was a big thing in Wuhan at the time, but um, we weren't really aware of just how much it would have changed our lives. Oh, look, absolutely not. It was, it was yeah, it was a completely different world, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> some people want to go back. I'm sure we all do yeah. in some ways. It was, it was still almost like a rumour or just something on the yeah. nightly news. Yeah. Um, who knew? Mm. And, um, and I know that we did touch briefly on Stoicism last time and we were talking about it in the context of Albert Camus, who wrote a fantastic book called The Plague, which is, of course, very relevant. And it was interesting when I was reading your piece in the conversation, Guide to the Classics, how Marcus Aurelius's meditations can help us in a time of pandemic. You also bring up the fact that Marcus Aurelius was the Roman emperor. And during that time that he was emperor, of course, there were wars and battles, but there was also the Antonin Plague, which killed 5 million people, which is a staggering number of people, really. And uh, so it's interesting to know and to think that, of course, we're not necessarily living in unprecedented times, um, although we are perhaps in modern times, but uh, plagues and pandemics are certainly not a new thing. Well, that's right, isn't it? I mean, I think that figure five million is—it was something like twenty percent of the of the population, according to some estimates. So obviously, that was, you know, that was an incredibly significant event, and it went on for sixteen years. You know, I guess they didn't have, well, they didn't have the medicine that we have, and I don't know whether lockdown was really a, a possibility in a city like Rome. 
um, you know, which had, I think, more or less several million people already at that time. So, mm. I mean, you can only imagine the, the, the scenes that would have unfolded in that context. And just for it to go on for 16 years is, is just staggering. Marcus was away for a good deal of that time. He was on the, on the, the frontiers doing what Roman emperors did, putting down revolts and, and, and protecting the borders. But it, it also ran through the army at several times. So, you know, um, as you say, certainly not unprecedented. Thankfully, the numbers so far, you know, are, are not exactly comparable, although in the United States they seem to be giving it a, giving it a shake. But certainly not here, and, 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 and we certainly hope that it's not going to last for 16 years. Mm, yes, yeah. And um, one of the interesting things about Stoicism is that it really, the, the kind of beginning of it is a lot earlier than some of these later writers like Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus. So I'm wondering if you could share with us, where did the philosophical movement of Stoicism originate? Okay, so Stoicism was born at the end of the, the fourth century before the Common Era. So it was born in, in, the, in the generation after Alexander had taken over all of Greece and m- most of the known world um, by a guy called Zeno. And one of the many interesting things about this movement is, although it was, it was Greek, we call it Greek philosophy, Zeno was himself from, well, uh, from Larnaca in, in what we would call Cyprus, and pretty much all of the significant early Stoics came from Turkey or what we would call the Near East. Um, they were all, in different ways, migrants into Athens. And, and that's something we kind of forget because, you know, you sort of look back on the classical world and it has a certain aura about it. And we assume that um, everyone there was, you know, Athenian. Um, everyone came to Athens who wanted a life of the mind, but not everyone in Athens who wanted the life of the mind was, was Athenian. And so they brought with them, um, they were traders or many of them were students and, and they brought with them, I guess, this, this different set of ideas, which nevertheless also drew on, on Socrates. And Socrates was their, their great hero, both for the life that he lived, the teachings that he taught and also the way that he died. And so this all sort of unfolded. So Zeno, the founder, he was last decade of the fourth century into the, the third century. And then there were two kind of major figures who followed him, major in terms of what they wrote, a guy called Cleanthes and then one guy called Chrysippus. Now, Chrysippus was the guy who kind of wrote most of all this down. He wrote over 300 books, but all of them are pretty much gone. And, you know, that's just the way that history works. The, the texts that we have, uh, as you say, mostly from, from the Roman period, and they're mostly from the Roman imperial period, so Seneca, uh, the younger, is the first sort of Stoic of, of great note because we have 16 of his philosophical dialogues and he also wrote letters and tragedies. Then there's Epictetus, uh, who was a little bit later, just into the second century, and he was a slave. So again, you know, it's, it's extremely interesting that this philosophy from its beginning attracts all comers from different places and also from all walks of life. So Epictetus was actually a cripple as well. So he was a crippled slave. Uh, he was emancipated and then he founded his own philosophical school. And such was, was the fame of this school that the Emperor Hadrian visited and sort of dignitaries from, from all around the place. And then finally, there's Marcus, Marcus Aurelius. Um, 
yeah, who was emperor from 161 to 180. He's generally considered to be the last of the great Roman emperors. His son, Commodus, was a bit of a disaster. And it's with Commodus on most accounts that the whole thing begins to unfold in terms of what was called the Roman peace. So, yeah, it's, the school spans in, in antiquity seven or 800 years. And, and for much of that time, it was probably the most popular philosophy in antiquity. So a lot more significant than, you know, it, it gets credit for in a lot of modern accounts of history where ancient philosophy is Plato and Aristotle and then mm. you skip to, to St. Augustine and off you go sort of thing. <laughs> there is a bit more than that, isn't there? It did remind me that there are people called the cynics who were around as well. The Cynics were, um, were another kind of influence, very strong influence on the Stoics. Epictetus, for example, really admired Diogenes, who's the most famous Cynic. And Diogenes was sort of like a, an ancient sort of performance, performance artist or, or situationist. He would go around Athens and try and convince everybody that they were living the wrong way by staging these kinds of mini spectacles. Like he would he would beg in front of statues with like his hands open as if he expected the statues to give him money and wait for people to ask him why he was doing that. And he'd say, well, I'm I'm teaching myself patience, you know, Uh, or he'd walk around Athens in daylight with a a lit, a lit lamp saying that he was looking for an honest man. (laughs) Um, And so on. And hence we get the word cynicism, right? Because, one of your jobs as a, as a cynic philosopher was to kind of go around and lambast people and, and try and shake them up, which is unusual and not for everyone. It's a different uh, approach than someone like Plato, who was trying to reason with people, I believe. And, and, and Socrates, yeah. yeah. Um, Diogenes was known as the mad Socrates. I mean, Socrates <laughs> would still accost people and question them and occasionally um, make them angry, but... There's this kind of missionary dimension to cynicism, which isn't really there in Socrates. And, mm. and it's not there in the, the Stoics. It's, the, the Stoics treat the cynics as kind of hardcore philosophical daredevils that really take a lot of good principles and push them to their absolute extreme in a way that they find immoderate and yeah. a, bit, a bit unbalanced. <laughs> so they're not really going to win over the, the kind of moderate people. Well, the Stoics had a lot of success with the Roman aristocracy in particular. And, you know, I guess we can talk about why why that is the case. But one reason is the philosophy does suggest that other things being equal, you know, human beings are brothers and sisters and and, um, you should treat others with with care and and with dignity. And and the cynic approach is more... uh, is more brutal than that, that um, if people have wrong opinions, they need to be corrected. And, you know, sort of uh, tiptoeing around the tulips is not going to get the job done. The Stoics are more likely to be Socratic and they're more likely to try to sit you down and talk to you Mm. and convince you that you might be in error in your ways rather than shouting at you and telling you that you are. Interesting. That's very interesting, especially nowadays when we're talking about... um, post-truth and a lot of people believing in conspiracy theories and the ways that we approach them when we believe that they're wrong. Look, what do you do? It's so common. I mean, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I remember when the, the 9-11 stuff started circulating around and I mean, that already seemed fairly troubling in all sorts of ways, but it's really since then just become 
so common. And yeah, what do you do when you confront people who sort of have ex- extremely exotic beliefs? It's difficult, but I mean, the, the Stoic and the Socratic would say that you should try to talk to them. And, 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 you know, one of the principles that they share is that nobody goes wrong willingly. Nobody mm. ro- d- does wrong or believes wrong things um, except through ignorance. And so you ought to be able to, to use reasoning to try and correct their beliefs. Now, of course, that's a pretty hazardous enterprise when somebody believes some um, fairly unusual things. And Socrates, I mean, as he, he, in some sources, we're told that Socrates occasionally got, got whacked by interlocutors by people who, who found him annoying. And even in Plato, there are points where Socrates is talking to someone who says, well, look, Socrates, I've had enough of you and I'm leaving. <laughs> um, so you, you, I mean, I guess the principle of these schools would be you can try. Yeah. Uh, and and, and, but if you try, you must realise that you can fail. Yeah. It's interesting, especially the kind of foundations of Stoicism. And, you know, when I was reading through it, as you say, this kind of the fact that we're all somehow interconnected and related, not necessarily like family relatives, but in a, a bigger sense that we're meant to look at each other as fellow humans and not have such severe judgment upon others. One of the things that is kind of what I call the warm side of stoicism, there's a more cold side, which is probably more famous. I mean, we still use the term stoicism to mean kind of not having a very good time and and sort of just being down on everybody. And I I think it's really inaccurate and there is a warm side of it. And it's, and, and it's a very cosmopolitan philosophy. It's, it's a philosophy that suggests that where you come from, the colour of your skin, what language you speak, what food you eat, all of that is completely not essential in terms of what makes a person a person and what, make, what makes people alike. And what makes people alike is their capacity to, to think, their capacity to suffer, but also the kinds of affections that we have because of the kinds of creatures that we are. So one of the later Roman Stoics, a lesser known guy called Hierocles, he has this idea of circles of concern. Like, first of all, people should look after themselves. Secondly, they should look after their families. That's the next circle. Then they should look after their local community. That's the next circle. Then they should look after their entire city or we would say country. And then the largest circle is every human being. And... I mean, in principle, I, you know, that could be extended, I guess, to, to all living beings. Mm. Um, certainly, Stoic philosophy believes that nature is, is a living organism and that we're all sort of parts of, of this living organism. So, you know, it has, it's a philosophy of interconnectedness, uh, although, as I say, there is this other side which point, you know, seemingly points to in a different way. But Marcus talks about us being like, you know, each of us is like the hand on a, on a, on a body and the body is like the, the human community. And when we act badly, it's like we chop, off, we, we chop off what ties us to the rest of the human community or he uses the metaphor of like a, a branch on a tree. You know, you kind of when you act badly towards others, when you create hatred or anger unnecessarily, it's like a little branch has got chopped off the, the human tree. So, I mean, I find that, as I say, I call it the warm side of... Of, of stoicism mm. it's very cosmopolitan it's very about interconnectedness and you know it, it has no truck with what we would call nationalism what we would call jingoism with 
you know, what we might call, you know, racial supremacies, which again, the internet seems to be bringing back into, into the public space. Yeah. And one of the kind of other elements of that in terms of what matters in the end is the fact that if one loses all of their personal possessions, I believe a Stoic would think that that is also not important in the sense that they haven't lost something that was intrinsic to them, their character. They've just lost an external possession or external good. So this is what gives rise to the the cold side of Stoicism. The Stoics argue that everything in the world that is beyond your control so external goods like i don't know i use the example of coke just as a miscellaneous consumer item but tvs everything like that you know anything you can buy and sell or trade it doesn't belong to you by nature they believe what belongs to you by nature are the things that you have direct control over and that is what you do what you think what you desire what you hope what you feel and what you fear. And that's pretty much, that's what the gods have delivered over to you for like 80 years, hopefully, for you to control. Everything else is controlled by either somebody else or by the gods, as they would say, we might say by nature, the course of nature or something like this. And so the idea is that, you know, if you, you do have to go into lockdown to use that kind of phrase, which it, it is really involving a lot of kind of privation of, of stuff we usually have. And not least the ability to kind of go out and hang out with our friends and stuff like that. That is, that they would say that's obviously not preferable and it's not according to the ordinary course of nature. Like ordinarily human beings do have communities. We don't wear masks. We, we can go to drinking establishments or eating establishments and, and eat and drink and, and, and share each other's company and so on and so forth. So it's not, it's not good, right, that that's happened. Mm. But neither would they say, is it, is it bad? in the sense that it doesn't prevent people in their view from still living well, because what concerns whether you live well is what you do with what happens to you, not just what happens to you. We're not like puppets that fortune can kind of pull the strings on. We have a say when fortune pulls the different strings, we can say, yeah, okay, I know that's happening, but what am I going to do about it? So, I mean, even the cold side of stoicism has an empowering message, which is that, you know, a lot of things can happen that you might think are really bad, but according to the Stoics, you know, they, they don't take away what is essential to being able to live well, which is the ability to think good thoughts and do good things. And when we get to looking at the world and what is good and what is bad, what would they consider to be good? So there's one thing in the world that the Stoics believe is good and they call it virtue which is not really a word that kind of has a lot of resonance i'm finding with students these days <laughs> um no i mean yeah, it's just it's just not really used yeah so virtue no. is like a, yeah strength of character again but that, again that sounds a little bit sort of english public school excellence is what the greek word means but again that just sort of now sounds a bit market sort of mm. market sort of <laughs> mumbo jumbo <laughs> um strength of character i don't know what, what would you call virtue excellence strength of character um i use the example of courage a lot because i think yeah students can still really resonate with with that with that virtue but other virtues integrity integrity is a virtue that people i think really want honesty yeah these are the things that the stoics think are good and and so basically the argument goes like this right so society might tell you that having a really nice car is is going to make you happy or something like this 
Um, and the Stoics say, okay, great, let's test the hypothesis. Let's get everybody who's got a really nice car and ask them whether they're really, really happy with, uh, with the world because they have that car. And if we find even one person who has a really nice car or whatever it is, a really nice house, a beautiful wife, whatever it is, but still is unhappy, then, then we can say that although having a beautiful partner or a nice car is perhaps preferable, it's not enough to make you happy. And all of those examples have, have ancient precedents. So clearly having these things isn't enough to make you happy. So what is it? We're not saying that having those things might not be preferable, but something else has got to be needed. And, and the thing that has to be needed is the ability to know what to do with them. The ability to, for example, treat your partner well. The ability to not overindulge in various substances. The ability to not get too caught up in the fact that your car might get stolen or might get doofed by somebody else or you might accidentally scrape it as you back out or it might break down or the power steering might lock or you know all the things that might happen with these things the good news of stoicism is what is really decisive is what you do with that and so they recommend a kind of reserve in the way that we treat external things a kind of inner reserve which another way they put this is it's a kind of indifference towards other things. I mean, it's not that you don't still get a job, get married, whatever it is you might do. It's just that you have a slightly different attitude towards them. You don't imagine that they're the be all and end all. So they're pretty strict on their terminological stuff. So for something to be good, it has to always benefit its possessor. And the only thing in the whole cosmos, they say that will always benefit you is the virtues like cars, Mm. TVs, partners, even kids, all of these things won't always benefit you or they won't always make your life easier or better. The one thing that always will is if you have courage, if you treat others with justice, if you think about what you're doing and you act with wisdom, and if you are moderate in your attitude towards these things, which means having a little bit of a kind of a what they call a reserve clause. So you still want to do stuff, so you want to get things done in the world, but you have a reserve clause. Like, I want to get that job, but I realise I might not get that job. And if I don't get that job, it's not going to be the end of the world because there might be other jobs. And that's the kind of, that's what they call a reserve clause, acting with a reserve clause. It seems like it's very, like a healthy way to approach something, to not get your hopes up and to pin all of your happiness or future hopes onto one certain thing especially if it is or many factors are beyond your control and one of the kind of other elements that I was interested in relating to that was when I I read a quote from Marcus Aurelius that he put in I think his second book which was before you get going in the morning say to yourself Today, I'll meet people who are meddlers, ingrates, bullies, cheaters, envious and antisocial people. All of this happens because they don't know the difference between what's good and what's bad. And then he also later goes on to talk about the fact that we should focus on our own flaws rather than those around us, because that's something that we can control. I'm interested in that way of looking at things to realize that nobody's perfect, that of course we're going to be challenged by other human beings in our daily life, but we need to to not kind of get angry and, and focus our vengeance or annoyance on them. 
How does one put that type of principle into practice when we're thinking about things in the 21st century and we're operating in, in an environment where things like social media just amplify annoyances and I guess sometimes the, the worst side of people? It's a great question. I mean, Marcus was, was an emperor, as we've said, so he was clearly surrounded by people who were scheming and, and backstabbing him. And look, I mean, a couple of, couple of guys had a shot at, at taking, over the, taking over the empire. And he comes back to this a lot. You know, he's clearly dealing with the fact that people are spreading rumours about him. They're, they're saying all sorts of things about him, that he's not a very good person, that he's not a very good leader and all that sort of stuff. So he, he's clearly kind of wrestling with this on a greater level, obviously, a greater scale, in terms mm. of significance than most of us. And that's one of the, I think, really powerful features of the meditations is nevertheless, all of these things, I think, kind of happen to most of us most of the time in competitive fields and so on and so forth. I mean, the, the key thing for the Stoics about, about dealing with other people is, is, that, is, again, it's that distinction between what's in your control and what's not in your control. And look, at a certain basic level, they'll say you can't really control what other people are going to do. And people form all sorts of weird and wonderful ideas, as we know, in the age of the internet. And therefore, they can treat you on the basis of those ideas in ways that you can barely understand because they categorise you in ways and so on and so forth. So all you can control is what you do with that. So there's a great quote which I use in the, in the piece about, you know, so you have heard that somebody has been speaking badly of you. And, he's just, and Marcus says to himself, what you have heard is that somebody has said this or that about you. You have not heard that you are harmed by this. Um, and that's the internal-external distinction, right? Mm. So, yes, it's out there. This is, this is going on. And reputations aren't in, in our control, even the reputation of an emperor can't be fully controlled. Although, you know, we, we spend lots of money these days on, on brand management and all that sort of stuff. All you can do is, is, is how you respond. And, and Marcus believes, and, and all of the Stoics believe that generally speaking, anger and this kind of unconditional desire for vengeance is generally pretty destructive. So Seneca, a Stoic, says that anger is like a, an acid that corrodes any vessel that you put it into. So yes, you're, you get angry, it may motivate you to act and, and, and it might um, be successful at action, but it also corrodes your, your well-being. It's not, it's not a nice inner state to be in, to be kind of racked with anger. So the ideal of the Stoic is that you should try to, to not be angry, you know. So when somebody insults you, they have this kind of very logical process you know if that person has said something that's true then change yourself if what they said is false don't worry about it if they've gone behind your back well that's their business it's not your business you haven't betrayed anyone's trust you haven't harmed anyone by doing that and so this very famous quote from book six is that the best revenge is not to be like the wrongdoer which which, you know, is, is extremely powerful and, and, and sort of anticipates that Christian idea of, of turning the other cheek. Because you have been wronged, you don't have to meet wrong with wrong, which mm. generally speak is just going to lead to an escalation. And none of this is easy. And this is why I think Marcus is coming back to this because the books were kind of probably written, we think, over more or less 14 or 15 years. And this stuff keeps on happening. So he's 
he's returning to this in his meditations because he's needing to to deal with it again and again. Yes, and there's an interesting element to this, which is that these meditations were written for Marcus Aurelius, and it was something that he was using um, in a very practical sense, I believe, in his own life. It wasn't necessarily to expound a, a philosophical theory for others to pick up and utilise necessarily, and it, it obviously it wasn't um, published during his lifetime either. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's no evidence from from anything that's said about Marcus, and obviously that's quite a lot because he's a he's an emperor. He was known as a philosopher, but to be known as a philosopher in antiquity didn't mean you wrote books. It meant that you lived a certain life. And there's pretty much no evidence in antiquity that he was writing a book. And it was kind of, it was discovered, that this collection of 12, um, 12 books uh, were discovered amongst his mortal remains. I really like this story. It's sort of, I believe it was they were found near the banks of the, the River Grand. It reminds me of J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, it's sort of like a, a philosophical ring of power, uh, except that this one was actually arguably for, for the cause of good rather than evil. So, yeah, it was found on the banks of the River Grand amongst stuff from, from Marcus's, I guess, his tent or something like this. And, you know, it wasn't in circulation for many, many years. It, it sort of crops up here and there until the Renaissance when so much was rediscovered. And then it gets translated into Latin and goes viral, as we would say, <laughs> and influenced people from, you know, from philosophers to, to leaders from that time forwards, you know, Bill Clinton, for example. And um, yeah. Nick, Gr- Nick Griner, the former NSW um, Premier, I believe, is a big fan or was a big fan of, of Marcus Aurelius. Interesting. I don't know whether that's going to please your listeners who might not <laughs> be any grinding. Anyway. <laughs> and obviously Bill, Bill had some work to do, right? He, he had some personal, personal work to do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That is so true. I'm interested bringing it back to the pandemic and also maybe the lockdown, given it's so real for everyone at the moment. And this feeling of isolation, which no doubt was around even when the lockdown wasn't in effect, because we're all having to socially distance, physically distance, not do the things we would normally do if we were celebrating a birthday or having a Friday night out. Things have really changed and that kind of person-to-person connection and relationships that we would normally have in a very easy way are no longer that easy. And I know that a lot of people have said that they're feeling very... Uh, I guess, alienated or or alone at the moment, depending on whether they're living by themselves, if they have a partner or no partner, if their family's close by or not. And I'm wondering in terms of human relations and intimacy and love, like how did Marcus Aurelius and perhaps the, the other Stoics view human connection and intimacy and its place as a kind of an important fulfillment of being human? So this is where the, the, the idea that there's a coldness to Stoicism kind of comes up because people say, well, look, if everything outside you is indifferent to you or at least it's at most to be preferred or not preferred, what does that mean about how you relate to other people? There seems to be something pretty basically wrong with that idea, you know, that your partner is just, you know, somebody who you, you hope or prefer will be living well and having good health and so on or your kids. So it is important that, as I say, this warm side of Stoicism kicks in. And this is the view, like, and it's very clear in some texts that 
they really do believe we are fundamentally interconnected and they, in, in an important way, they, they point in particular to parental love as, as kind of like the most basic sort of unit of human connection that, you know, that is kind of the basis of everything else in the sense that parents just spontaneously, naturally, more or less selflessly love their kids. And in some formulations, for example, in one of Cicero's books, the whole system is built up on that, on, on kind of spreading that, the, the circles of affection that we talked about before mm. um, on the basis of this idea that we're born for each other, we're born from each other, we're born for each other. And, and look, that's clearly, that's a, such a difficult part of, of what's going on. I mean, I've got a family um, and, um, you know, there are other jokes about lockdown with your family <laughs> uh, and longing for isolation. But yes. I mean, I have students who are single people in their 20s living by themselves who had a taste of freedom just a little while ago and now they're back in lockdown. And some of them, understandably, are, are doing hard. And I guess what's happened there is that expectations have changed. You know, I think mm. there was... I don't know how others felt about it, but I, I know some people I've spoken to, it was kind of a little bit of a, a novelty factor about for lockdown 1.0, you know, it was a bit of a holiday. We're going to be working from home. You know, we get to kind of work in our bedrooms or our studies or whatever mm. it is. But I think this time it's just, it's just bleak. It's just how long is this going to last? Is six weeks realistic, particularly that the numbers are, are, are really bad in Metro Melbourne at the moment. And so when you have those alternative expectations, it's a lot harder to deal with because you're measuring your experience against those changed expectations, which were that we were going to come out of this, which were th things were going to get better, we were over the worst of it and so on. And I guess the, the stoic position would simply, I mean, it, this may or may not help, but they would say, well, those expectations unfortunately haven't become real and we need to treat them with a little bit of reserve now. And and perhaps alter our our expectations and treat them with a bit of reserve. You know, let's let's hope that six weeks is what it is. But you know, even six weeks, unfortunately, may not be. And let's just let's try and in advance anticipate that it may not be. And this is what they call premeditating evils, not in order to wallow in despair, but in order to to strengthen ourselves in advance. Now, in terms of how that might look, in terms of of reconnecting with people. I mean, I don't think there's much that the philosophy can say to us, except, you know, we do have these incredible technologies. They're never going to be the same, mm. but obviously, you know, if you can get your kids, for example, as we do to play with their friends on zoom, they laugh, they're animated. You can see that it's, it's, it's still a real human thing, even for like a four year old or a six year old. And so it's clearly still a, you know, it's still a more human experience than, than, than a lot of art, than, than being by yourself. So I guess, yeah, maximise those things. I mean, the Stoics think that it's part of our, our nature to be connected. So if possible, find connection and, and um, you know, grab a drink with, with your mates on a, on, a, on a Friday night on Zoom, I guess. Listen to some, <laughs> listen to some music together, you know. Yeah. Well, you can watch um, movies together as well. Yeah, watch movies together. Yeah, I mean, share, share yeah. stuff. That's the thing, you know. You know, the Stoics are very fond of fire metaphors. And one of the reasons why is because, you know, with a candle, it's, it's the same as in other traditions. You can light another candle and the first candle's not diminished. 
and mm. you know human connection and, and and sharing knowledge is like that as well like if i teach you about stoicism now you can go and share it mm. but i haven't i haven't lost my knowledge you know i hope <laughs> so that won't be before because of our conversation anyway it might be no similarity in my case same even <laughs> not you're not even yeah. close to that yeah yet, surely it's a bit more to go Oh, yeah, ask my wife about that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask just about um, Seneca, who is a bit of a favourite of mine. And I know that he's not necessarily the most prominent Stoic when we're talking about Stoicism nowadays. I know Marcus Aurelius is certainly has that very accessible format and Seneca was writing quite differently in different formats. But why do you think it is that Seneca, who I guess is still part of the Stoic movement, hasn't been so prominent, even though we have such a great range of his writings? It's really interesting. Like at different periods when Stoicism came back, like Stoicism came back massively in the Renaissance and early modern period. And Seneca was the guy then. And yet now Stoicism is coming back and... I mean, I went to the, the Stoicon event in Athens last year, which is the sort of global gathering of, of people who are interested in Stoicism. And it's all about Marcus Aurelius. And I think it's the personal dimension, the dimension of sort of him speaking to himself. So there's no arrogance, there's no moralising. Like he's, he's trying to get his shit together, as we would say. Seneca is, is, is still a part of this, but he's definitely number two or number three, actually. Probably number three after Epictetus. Mm. I don't know. Seneca is kind of, he's, he's more like a, a noble monument, you know, where the Marcus is more like a living human being. Like, I mean, that's a little unfair. Like the letters that Seneca writes to his friend Lucilius are still, I, you know, and that's what's most popular of Seneca's mm. because there is that personal dimension. But the dialogues are a little bit different. They're quote-unquote dialogues. Somebody has asked Seneca a question and he basically gives a, a spiel. So they're not really dialogues, but it's, it's just that that's how things were done back then they're a little bit more formal they're like beautiful speeches that you know that a philosopher might give they're very well crafted and they lack perhaps that personal connection that you can get from Marcus Aurelius and differently in Epictetus because Epictetus is kind of like he's like your boxing trainer he's like your get your stuff together, Matt, you know, you say this and then you do that. You're a fool, you know, you need to kind of get your stuff together. And I think people relate to that as well. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, the kind of the Anthony Robbins, type, he's kind of like a modern non-Stoic, Stoic, I guess, in that sense. And Marcus, as I say, has this personal thing. Mm. Seneca is elevated, noble, and perhaps a little distant, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'm, yeah. yeah, as I say, I'm just trying to think off, off, off the top of my feet because it did strike me last year that that's mm. what's going on. Yeah, they all have really important things to say. I, th- I feel like they're all offering something very different, which, depending on your preference for how you receive information, may resonate more than the other. But I, I certainly agree there is this immediacy with Marcus Aurelius when you're reading his quotes and um, meditations. It is very easy to digest and immediately grasp the meaning. Absolutely. Yeah. And as I say, Epictetus is, is, is kind of funny. So there's that yeah. for him. But Seneca's really, he's not really, he's not really funny. It's not a comedian. Uh, no, he's not. He's very, he's very grave and dour and serious and elevating. that i like him now <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're a renaissance woman Amy, i must apparently. be <laughs> yeah that's awkward 
No, um, <laughs> I, I also liked Epicurious. So yeah, I, I don't know. We all we all do things differently, you know. And I mean, you can read different things at different times, and all of a sudden something sparks that wasn't there the first time. Mm. Um, Depends on when you read it. I, I have over the years. I, I confess, I've never really sat down and done the whole Seneca thing in one go as I have with the others. I mean, there's more of it, but yeah, I've always found it's something I can dip into rather than something I want to sort of constantly return to. But that's me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Matthew, we're going to have to leave it there, but I'm really grateful for your amazing insight today. It's uh, been really helpful and hopefully helpful for everyone else listening to have a different way of framing their life situation at the moment, which of course is difficult for so many people in very different ways. And um, I'm really appreciative of your time and uh, your generous teachings of these great philosophers who we can um, access whenever we like. And hopefully that do give us some sense of comfort and perspective in all of this very overwhelming situation in Victoria at the moment. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast. For 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Emeritus Professor Jenny Hocking. Jenny is a political scientist and biographer and is the inaugural Distinguished Whitlam Fellow at the Whitlam Institute. She's also affiliated with Monash University. Jenny joined me to talk about her High Court win to have the Palace Letters released by the National Archives of Australia. We talk about what they reveal about the 1975 Whitlam dismissal, as well as their significance to us now. I'm really pleased to welcome to the show Jenny Hocking, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Amy. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for taking the time to chat. I know um, you've certainly been in demand recently, and is it any wonder? Um, And I know that uh, the Whitlam dismissal, was a very important moment for many people, many Australians who were living um, at the time and remember it well as either children or adults. And uh, it's even, of course, still very significant to people like myself who were not born at the time um, but are obviously followers of politics and also look at uh, Gough Whitlam as being one of the greatest uh, prime ministers we had um, in terms of his policy vision and the types of kind of cataclysmic, in a great way, um, things that he did for Australia in uh, levelling and creating social equity. So first up, um, given that you have this background and a really strong grounding in Gough Whitlam's overarching uh, life, given you've written a two-volume biography about this great man, <laughs> I, I wonder what really brought you into looking at, at Gough Whitlam in such depth and then pursuing this, you know, quite long and and um, fascinating career in following the, the Whitlam dismissal. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Um, well, the biography of Gough Whitlam was actually the third biography I'd, I've written. <laughs> um, I discovered biography... Um, after working, funnily enough, in the much more dry and uh, traditional political science area of counterterrorism, <laughs> and I was always interested in, um, you know, in how democracy works and what sort of constraints 
um, are deliberately or otherwise placed on our capacity to really function as a democratic state, and clearly the counterterrorism initiatives I have found very disturbing for a range of levels um, uh, around those issues. Um, and I'd spend a lot of time on that. But I, I, I came across the form of biography in my first biography, which was of the Labor Attorney General and later High Court Justice Lionel Murphy, who was an extraordinarily reforming Attorney General in the Whitlam government, a really significant figure, um, both particularly as Attorney General, but also on the High Court, um, where he took a very different view to most of the High Court judges. Um, that he served with. Um, and I loved biography as a form of telling Australian history or any history. It's, you know, filled with fascinating characters, fascinating episodes, and it's a way of really bringing them to life if you if, if you can write it in that narrative style as I do. Um, and it was really through that that, that um, at some point later I returned to the similar field with looking at Gough Whitlam. I'd met Whitlam when I uh, interviewed him for the Lionel Murphy book, uh, the biography, and I'd often wondered about it, but it took some time before I decided I, I wanted to go back into a similar sort of political time period that, uh, as that for Murphy. And, and look, it was a terrific relationship uh, uh, of the three biographies I've written. Um, uh, this was the only time that I was able to actually speak to the subject of the biography, Murphy had died when I wrote about him. The other biography I wrote about um, Frank Hardy, the Australian communist and author, mm. a very political figure, uh, and in many respects a forgotten writer, but a very interesting writer. Um, he had also died, but I had met him previously. So here with Whitlam, I was able to both meet him and speak to him, and <laughs> this was a new experience mm. for me as a biographer. And, you know, the extraordinary thing is that in all the depths of the conversations we had, the formal interviews I did with him, he never asked to see the book before it was published, and I always respected that greatly. It was not something I had ever uh, would ever have done. I, I, I took a very strong line on that from the beginning. It was my book. It was to be written as I saw it. Um, so, yes, that led me into a very long period of working on that biography for the best part of 10 years. And uh, in terms of obviously meeting Gough Whitlam and talking about the many, many important parts in his political life and career as Prime Minister, of course, at the end. Um, I wonder, when you were reflecting on the dismissal, the moment of the dismissal, and we didn't yet have access to what we do now, um, and of course Gough Whitlam passed away um, in recent years, what was his response and reaction and, and reflection on the dismissal uh, from his perspective? Well, the dismissal was obviously an absolutely shocking uh, point in his in his uh, political career. It was effectively the end of his political career. He'd spent um, the best part of 20 years in Parliament since the early 50s, uh, you know, during the most barren and hopeless years for the Labor Party when it was torn apart by the split, the great split of 1955 in particular, um, which decimated the Labor Party. And, of course, Sir Robert Menzies, the, the Liberal leader, had a, a really unassailable hold on Australian politics as Prime Minister uh, during that time period until the late 60s. Um, but Whitlam was an extraordinary backbencher and then an extraordinary leader of the opposition when he recast the Labor Party, rebuilt um, the policy platform so, you know, the dreadful aspect of the dismissal was that it was entirely unexpected. Um, uh, the Governor-General did not warn him, as the Governor-General must. 
Mm. Uh, the Governor-General refused to act on Whitlam's advice, and Whitlam was advising a half-Senate election, which was to be held at that time. Um, it, it, I think, uh, uh, shocked Whitlam not just because it happened. He described it to me later uh, at the moment in John Kerr's study where Kerr handed him the letter of dismissal, Whitlam told me was uh, the greatest shock he had ever experienced in his life. Um, but it also shocked his belief in the parliamentary system. He was someone who who held the parliamentary system, the structures of liberal democracy, the Westminster system, and, of course, what he always called the Great Australian Labor Party, um, highest in his, in his uh, belief, in his esteem and in his commitment. And it really shattered that. It shattered the way in which he saw people operating from a sort of ethical position in, in those positions of governance. Uh, and he simply struggled, I think, for several years to to come to terms with that. And I think it's to his great credit that he did, that he did not become embittered and uh, uh, obsessed, as I believe Sir John Kerr did, uh, the Governor-General. And a large part of that, I think, is owed to the fact that Bob Hawke, the, the, his successor Labor Prime Minister, appointed Whitlam as Australia's ambassador to UNESCO. And Whitlam had a very fruitful and very productive three years um, uh, as Australia's ambassador and he was then elected to the UNESCO board, executive board. So he spent another three years um, in that capacity and that was a great joy to him. And I think it really it really saved him in a sense from what a lesser figure might have become um, being unable to cope with. Mm, that's a fascinating observation. And he certainly made such a contribution in lifting up the arts in Australia and promoting culture and um, so many different programs that enabled people to engage with the arts and culture and heritage. Um, in terms of your experience researching, and no doubt you've spent a very great length of time looking through archival boxes and um, pouring over letters and telegrams uh, across your career, you know, looking into these great uh, figures in history, but particularly looking at the Whitlam dismissal. And I do know that, um, you know, you went through a lot of Sir John Kerr's letters that were actually accessible at the time um, and, and open for public viewing or scrutiny. Um, I wonder, when you were looking through those letters, what was the catalyst for you to to realise there was something more and to also decide to pursue this um, through legal avenues to actually achieve access to the palace letters, to achieve access to what clearly has been missing in this story um, and what hasn't hadn't been transparent and open about the dismissal up until now? Well, really it was that process through other archives that you describe, there's one thing to be said about the history of the dismissal as opposed to the dismissal itself. The history of the dismissal has been a very, very uh, difficult one to ascertain. I mean, all history, you know, you go back to original documents, you go to as many sources as you can, um, and you often there's a largely accepted uh, received history, you might call it, around particular events. But with the dismissal, you just couldn't really grasp that. It was slippery. It was kept secret on some levels. People, let's face it, did not tell the truth about what happened. The Prime Minister had been deceived. And perhaps the most shocking thing after that was that our history was deceived. Mm. Time and again in Kerr's papers, what would shock me is how much of what Kerr wrote in his papers had been publicly denied by Kerr, by Fraser, 
by others at the time. It was, you know, truly, and by Sir Garfield Barwick, our Chief Justice, truly quite a shocking realisation uh, at, at that level of the ethical uh, nature of what was done in 1975 and how it was then written up in the history by the protagonist. Just one example of that is that among her papers, I found what many people described at the time as an absolutely transformative um, detail about the dismissal that had always been denied, and that was the role of the of the um, of, of the then um, Justice of the High Court, Sir Anthony Mason. For many months, Mason uh, had been meeting in secret with Kerr, had been, as Kerr described it, guiding him for the decision he was to take, fortifying him for the decision he was to take. It was a profound breach of the separation of powers, absolutely vital for understanding the role of others in the dismissal when we had always been told that this was a decision made by Kerr alone. So I knew that Kerr's papers were absolutely vital. I knew it contained secrets that were gradually being revealed to us, that the history was changing because of that. And here was one file that I could not access. I found out later that they were uh, the letters between Sir John Kerr and the Queen. And of all things, Amy, the most extraordinary thing is that letters between the Queen and the Governor-General two people at the apex of a constitutional monarchy were described as personal. And so mm. because they were described as personal, they weren't considered official Commonwealth records and therefore they didn't come under the Archives Act, which would have meant they'd be in the open access period after 30 years. So, of course, I was in a catch-22. Because they're not Commonwealth records, I couldn't appeal because that only related to Commonwealth records. I could not appeal to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is relatively straightforward, and certainly far less onerous, because I think it cost $1,000, but at that time it was for, it, there was no cost for appealing. There was literally nothing I could do, and that was about a decade ago. So, look, it took a long wow. time for me to talk to others, to uh, discuss it with um, lawyers, and a wonderful barrister in Sydney, Tom Brennan, had written an article about the fact that the letters were hidden and said, look, under our own Archives Act, Australia owns its history. We should be able to access these letters. I saw his, his article. I contacted him and said, look, I completely agree. This is an outrage. These are key documents in our history and all Australians ought to be able to open them and look at them and understand them. And so, look, out of that, we connected um, and I came away thinking about it. There was a real possibility of mounting a, a legal action. Mm. And I know it started in the federal court, but did you ever think that it would end up at the high court? No, no, look, it's, a, it, it's been such a long process, a four-year process, as you know. Um, I didn't. It sounds strange, but I didn't think towards the end point. I, I thought each step through at the time. Um, it was a big decision to go forward. Um, there were a lot of uh, elements that ha we had to try to control um, around the risk factors involved, which were real. Um, you know, the, 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 the lawyers were working magnificently and, and very generously on a pro bono basis. Um, and I had a marvellous um, crowdfunded campaign alongside that. So there are a lot of juggling things happening. Um, and I was just determined that if I could sort those issues out along the way, step by step, I would go forward as far as we possibly could. Uh, it's interesting that we always anticipated, or at least the legal team, um, uh, you know, clearly it was clear to me that one prospect was that it could end up at the High Court because I felt all along that if the archives lost at any point, they would appeal 
So in that sense, yes, I knew that was the end point. Um, but I tried not to think about that um, uh, because it makes the whole thing absolutely massive and I yeah. found it easier to deal with on a step-by-step basis. Um, and by the time we got to the High Court, I think that's the point at which I felt, uh, you know, that this was truly momentous because it's so difficult to succeed Mm. at uh, the level of applying for special leave to appeal to the High Court. I, I was reading just yesterday that those figures are barely 10% actually do make it through to the High Court on appeal. So it was very a very difficult step. But more difficult than that was the difference between me as a self-funded, crowd-funded litigant <laughs> against all of the resources of the Commonwealth. I was not only fighting the archives whom I took to court, but by the time we got to the High Court... Uh, the Attorney General in the Morrison government, Christian Porter, joined with the archives in in, cha- in in contesting the case against me. And, of course, right from the beginning, Government House and Buckingham Palace have made a submission to the Federal Court, arguing in the strongest possible terms that the letter should not be released. So it was a pretty clear imbalance in our institutional resources by the time we got to the High Court. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, on a kind of side note, I noticed that the um, National Archives are certainly struggling for funding to digitise a lot of their magnetic tapes. So um, I was I was surprised that it did get to the High Court, um, given that it's so difficult to ascertain or obtain funding for the arts and culture um, at the best of times. Um, I did want to oh, ask... Look- go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say that's a very, very important point. You know, Mm. there's very strong questions, I think, raised about the priorities of the archives in contesting an effort to make available for public access letters which are in their own holdings. They were effectively arguing against public access to, to critical historical documents. I mean, I found that very difficult in the first instance. But secondly, that, yes, the cost to the taxpayer from their budget was massive. We, we estimate around about a million dollars by the time it got to the High Court. And, of course, since they lost the case in a 6-1 decision in my favour, all costs were awarded against the archives, which has probably doubled that cost they were facing at that point. So you're looking in the order of $2 million uh, that has been expended by the archives on trying to, to, to argue against um, access to the letters. Effectively, allow it, they would have allowed the Queen's embargo to continue. And I think that does raise real questions about their priorities at the moment. Yes, yeah. I certainly saw in the news it would be in the hundreds of thousands or at least 130,000 hours of audio and video on the magnetic tape may not be digitised in time, but that's another conversation. Um, but I did want to pick up on what you're saying about the that real resistance that you were met with um, by many people, not just the archives, of course. Um, we did see that the official secretary to the Governor-General, Mark Fraser, um, noted in a submission that uh, the palace letters continued continued secrecy was essential, quote, to preserve the constitutional position of the monarch and the monarchy, end quote. And I was really interested in that kind of angle and, and motivation for protecting so-called the, the monarchy and the monarch um, and, and their position within Australia. What was your kind of response and, and reaction to that type of argument? Well, this is really the nub of um, 
some of the key strands in the archives' legal argument um, from the beginning. And I have to say, it always surprised me that we were meant to sway our own judges in our own jurisdiction here in Australia that the interpretation of our own Archives Act ought to have any consideration of the wishes of the Queen in this way. And yet that was repeatedly um, put to the court that uh, uh, there would be damage done to the monarchy, that, that it would potentially um, impinge on the integrity and the dignity, it was claimed in one of the submissions, of, of the Queen and the monarch, and indeed of the monarchy itself more broadly. So, so yes, a very strong um, uh, claim of, uh, uh, of relevance of, of uh, the royal wishes, um, and, and I was always surprised by that. Um, and indeed, the High Court judgment made it very clear, the majority judgment made it very clear that their finding uh, did go against the express wishes of the Queen and made the point that the Queen's wishes could not um, take the place of the statutory interpretation of the Archives Act. Now, you might think that in 2020, <laughs> for an independent autonomous nation, we, we should not have to actually make that point, but we did, mm. because the very strong um, the very strong thread through the Archives argument was the need to retain what, what they termed a convention of royal secrecy. Now, that's just an intolerable notion for any, any independent state. You can't protect royalty ahead of the normal workings of governance. Um, and so that it's, it's actually a very, very significant judgment because of that. Um, and I think that's a level of implication that is yet to be fully explored in the High Court decision um, because we've all focused understandably on the immediate access to the letters. Never before, I think, in a Commonwealth nation has there been a challenge to royal secrecy in this way. You, royal correspondence is simply locked up impenetrable, is in the Royal Archives or in our own Commonwealth Archives, and you cannot access it. This has broken through that, and it's a very important decision. Yeah, that's so true. And uh, the, the kind of precedent that it provides for potentially other cases down the track will be really interesting to see um, how this legal area develops and emerges given this case. So um, I think a pat on the back to you and the great legal team for pursuing this and um, and also to those who contributed to that crowdfunding uh, campaign because it really has been a, a very important um, action to pursue. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you. It has been, and it's been an enormous privilege and, and a, great, um, a great experience, I must say, to, to be able to follow a legal case through in its way and to see how history can feed into a, a case. I, I, I have found that process conceptually absolutely riveting. So yeah. you know, I'm a bit of a nerd on that level, but, <laughs> but it really has been uh, such an important case and I, I, I thank everyone involved. Mm, yeah, uh, well, I can relate to you on the nerd front. Um, now, getting to the nerd <laughs> parts of the conversation, perhaps, um, where I'm so excited about, you know, understanding better what, in your mind, given that you've had such a, a great opportunity to read, or you know, a huge, vast amount of Sir John Kerr's letters prior to these palace letters and, of course, other primary evidence, um, no doubt you've now had a chance to, you know, read over the numerous letters Letters, and I believe you said there were 211 letters, totaling 1,200 pages within this um, palace letters uh, grouping um, that was finally released by the National Archives just a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, could you share with us what 
kind of things we did learn, what things we learned from these letters that we didn't have a, a definitive answer or a clear understanding of uh, without them? Yeah, we, look, we, we had, um, they are an amazing set of papers. That's the first thing to say. They're just extraordinarily important. All of the things I had anticipated um, really are, are met by the letters in terms of their significance, the, the, um, the great light they shed on Kerr's thinking and on the role of the palace in terms of influencing Kerr's thinking. I think that's without a doubt now. Much of the material confirmed um, uh, uh, what I had already found in Kerr's papers because the other point to make about Kerr's papers is that he, he, he quotes from several of these palace letters in a journal that he keeps there, he, he keeps extracts from some of the letters. There are several ways in which we've already been able to piece together the sorts of things the letters would tell us. The first point I would make um, is that from the point of view of what Kerr is writing to the palace, um, Kerr is behaving um, absolutely disgracefully for improperly for a Governor-General. He is, from the very first letter, he is undermining the government. It's a sustained undermining. He uh, disputes government decisions. He, even in his very first letter to Sir Martin Charters in mid-1974, he questions the legality of the proclamation that he is to sign for the, 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 the joint sitting of the Houses of Parliament in August 1974, which followed the, the double dissolution of that year. It's an extraordinary commentary, and of course, it was untrue. The High Court was asked to rule on that and found in Whitman's pay, in the government's favour. Nevertheless, Kerr is absolutely uh, disrespecting uh, Cavaline and uh, on key points, uh, uh, quite literally undermining the government, which he is meant to represent and whose advice he is meant to be passing on to the palace. That's the first thing that struck me. It's, a, it's quite a shocking exchange. Others have also written about this. Mango McCallum, a veteran journalist, described the fact that the palace engages with these conversations with Kerr as unconscionable. And I think that's pretty much the, the tone and the uh, interpretation that after the first few days of exploring a letter most commentators had come to. The question is not, <clears throat> as, as was flown around fairly quickly, and I think <clears throat> in a very, um, you know, constructed red herring, I'm losing my voice, <clears throat> The question is not one of was the Queen told before um, before uh, uh, Kerr, Kerr dismissed the government or uh, was it the Queen's decision to dismiss the government? I mean, we already know the answer to both those questions is, of course not. Kerr had already indicated that in his, in his memoirs. We all know that it was Kerr who signed the letter dismissing Wickham, um, you know, and unless we seriously entertain the possibility the Queen was behind the curtain, this was Kerr making that, that final judgment. The question and the critical thing that is revealed in the letters is how did Kerr get to that point? How did he make that decision? And what role did the Queen have through her private secretary in, in pointing Kerr in that direction? And there are several letters that are key to the argument that that is clearly what happened at this time. And they begin in um, October 1975 and, and very, very clearly, I've argued in a piece in The Guardian last week, uh, in two letters in particular from the 4th and the 5th of November 1975. Um, so it is a matter of going through the letters in great detail and seeing that Kerr's decision was very much influenced um, by the letters he was getting from Sir Martin Charters in reply. And indeed, that's, that's exactly what Kerr had said in his papers elsewhere, 
he'd already referred to Chartist as advice to me on dismissal, is the wording he used, and he'd also indicated just how important Chartist's illuminating observations, as Kerr described them, were to his final decision to dismiss the government. So I think that's been shown beyond any doubt by these letters, and it's it's a shocking thing. Yeah, it is. It certainly is. And um, obviously the Queen's private secretary is an important figure and plays a very significant role for the Queen. Um, and you mentioned uh, Sir Martin Charteris and there were or there have been you know, various people writing uh, about these letters now looking at different quotes and um, what they've said. And it was interesting that um, on September the 24th, 1975, a letter from Charteris to Sir John Kerr uh, pointed out a Canadian constitutional law expert, Eugene Forsey's opinion that, quote, if supply is refused, this always makes it constitutionally proper to grant a dissolution, um, end quote, which of course means dissolution of parliament. Um, I'm interested in those uh, ad points of advice or pointing, look over here, um, here's some legal information that's relevant to this situation. There were, it seems, multiple points in the in the letters that do kind of point to the reserve powers of the Governor-General um, and, of course, the, the types of powers that are available to the Governor-General uh, within the Constitution. In your mind, when you were reading through them, do you think there were some significant points or moments, as you say, in November, that did hint or show that the the palace kind of knew um, that they were providing some level of uh, indicative advice or indicative information um, as to an option that Sir John Kerr could pursue? Oh, look, absolutely. And it is it does hinge on this pointing to Fawzi. You're absolutely right. There are three letters that refer Kerr to Fawzi. The one that you mentioned and the two that come just days before the dismissal, which is on the, 5th, the 4th and the 5th of November. Um, and in those ones, uh, uh, Charters is even more um, pointed in drawing Kerr's attention back to Fawzi. Now, the question of Fawzi as somebody who is being pointed to here is absolutely fascinating and, again, quite shocking. Fawzi put forward a very, very particular view of the use of the reserve powers. And more importantly than that, is, of course, Kerr would have been well aware of Fawzi's work. It's not as if Charters are saying, oh, here's someone you might not have heard of. Mm -hmm. uh, every Australian constitutional lawyer would have mm -hmm. known of Eugene Fawzi, precisely because he took a very strong view supporting the use of reserve powers. Uh, the Australian expert in this area, Dr H.V. Everett, took a different view around key aspects of the use of the reserve powers, namely that there could be no use of them in particular instances where, for example, the government retained its majority in the House of Representatives, as the Whitman government always did. Mm. But more importantly than all of this, Amy, is a simple fact that Kerr did not at any point raise with Charles what was the advice of his Prime Minister. What was the advice of the Australian law officers, that is, the Attorney General and our um, and our Solicitor General, and a Commonwealth, well, the Solicitor General is now called, and and on both those fronts, the advice was that this was not a circumstance in which the reserve powers could be used. So, Charters is pointing Kerr to advice that is against the advice he is getting from the Australian government. He is pointing him to a very particular conception of the use of the reserve powers. And in that way, he is making absolutely clear 
the road that can be theoretically validated for the use of the reserve powers in both dismissing a government and removing a government from office. And it, it is a shocking, um, uh, as I've said many times now, uh, a fact that Kerr was engaging in a process of gaining advice from and being given advice from uh, from the Queen, effectively, through her public, uh, through her private secretary, whilst he was not taking the advice of the Australian elected government, the Prime Minister or the Australian Law Officers. Mm, it is astounding. And one of the quotes that I found really astounding, um, and it is from uh, the 4th of November 1975, which you do quote in the Guardian article, um, was from Charterist to Sir John Kerr, and the quote is, quote, if you do, as you will, what the Constitution dictates, you cannot possibly do the monarchy any avoidable harm. The chances are you will do it good, end quote. Um, which seems to be pretty revealing of um, a level of sub- subjectivity on this on this issue of of using those reserve powers and the consequences of them. Oh, absolutely! And also, you have to recall <coughs> the when Charters is referring to uh, if you do as you must, what the Constitution requires, and he's already told him the Constitution requires, <laughs> according to Forbey, um, that you will always remove the government if it cannot gain supply. Um, absolutely critical. And, of course, um, uh, given that this is advice coming uh, uh, from the palace of all things, when, when the Governor-General at all times ought to be acting on, or at the very least speaking to and discussing with, um, these matters with the elected government, and that is precisely what Kerr had determined that he would not do. Mm-hmm. So it's important to put those two things together, that Kerr himself has acknowledged in various writings, he appeared to be proud of the fact that he was refusing to speak to the government about these things. Now, he says uh, in his memoirs that as early as September, he had decided on what he called the policy of silence towards the Prime Minister. Now, uh, I've described that as just constitutionally preposterous. It's it's Mm. inconceivable that a Governor-General who in the Constitution acts on the advice of um, of elected uh, government through his chief ministerial advisers um, uh, uh, has chosen not to speak to the Prime Minister. In my view, at that moment, Kerr was unable to operate as Governor-General. He ought to have resigned. He ought to have said to Whitlam, I cannot uh, do the very fundamental um, uh, role of a Governor-General in speaking and discussing matters with you and, you know, hand in his commission. It's, it's a simply intolerable position that the government then effectively... Um, was in a position of deception from the Governor-General because he was speaking to others about the very matters that led to the dismissal of the government while he was remaining silent on them to the government. Mm. And I know a lot of... Uh, there's been a lot of speculation around Kerr, the, the man, and his character and his potential motivations um, and and a lot of people not really understanding why someone would go to such effort to um, not just you know, do something that is literally unprecedented, has never happened in Australian history before, but also to um, so closely relate back and forth, as you've said, um, back and forth to the palace on this issue and not actually, uh, you know, just represent the Queen and actually be embedded within the country and the legal system he's actually situated in. Um, But I wonder from your perspective now, given that you've read these letters and you have read Kerr's other letters, what can we assess or um, understand, gain an understanding about this man who was our Governor-General and why he did this? 
Look, it's one of the um, it, it's 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 an imponderable on one level, but in another on another. On another level, it's very clear in a very disheartening way just what a deeply damaged person Kerr was. He was um, insecure. He was vain. He was given to flattery. You can see throughout these letters, um, he's being played by the palace, you know, the wily old uh, monarchical retainer of um, Sir Martin Charters has his measure, of course, and the persuasiveness with which he, you know, cajoles Kerr about his his great uh, constitutional capacity, his great legal knowledge, um, and so on. And Kerr is, is clearly in their thrall. Um, but I think we shouldn't take away from the fact that there was enormous pressure on Kerr. And I'm speaking now of the man that's barely been mentioned uh, since the release of the letters, and that is the leader of the opposition, Malcolm Fraser. Mm-hmm. Fraser himself describes uh, his discussions with Kerr as threatening. Um, that he threatened to denounce him if he did not move against the government. These are shocking. I've used that word a lot, I know. But these are really appalling uh, discussions for a leader of the opposition whose party had lost the previous two elections, I should remind everyone, um, to be having with the Governor-General. He has no... There's no constitutional relationship whatsoever between the leader of the opposition and the Governor-General. He ought to only have been speaking to Whitlam and he ought to have been taking the advice of the government. It was, it was that simple. Had he done so, he would have called the half-Senate election and we would not be having this conversation today. So Kerr was under enormous pressure from Fraser. Fraser later said that, you know, oh, I, I understood Kerr better. I understood his temperament. I, I, could, I could play him better than Whitlam. Well, you know, the Prime Minister should not have to play the Governor-General. No. <laughs> they, each, they each have a clear role and they ought to have been fulfilling their role. So the whole notion that, um, you know, somehow Whitlam was in error for not recognising the frailties of the Governor-General, I've always found rather bizarre. They had their own roles, they ought to have played the roles, and we would not, as I said, we would not now be still discussing the dismissal 45 years (laughs) later if that had happened. Absolutely. Um, Just finally, Jenny, in terms of history, of course, history is very much important for the present and the future in terms of what it can tell us and what we should be learning from it. And I wonder, from these letters and from the process that you've undertaken and um, and the greater understanding you now have of the dismissal and the situation circumstances around it, what do you think um, are some of the lessons in your mind from this period and and from this um, these letters, I guess, potentially around the constitutional monarchy um, as one clear example? Yes, look, um, I'm a member of the uh, National Committee of the Australian Republic Movement, let me get that out there, and I feel very strongly that, um, that we ought to be able to stand on our own two feet and not have to be asking the Queen, firstly, whether we can look at you know, archival material in our own <laughs> national archives, but more, I suppose, more structurally, of course, whether there ought to be any of these, uh, what Whitlam called colonial relics floating around in the most unexpected places, even in our own archives, um, that still tie us in these sort of unexpected ways um, to notions of royal secrecy, to connections to, to Buckingham Palace, to connections between Government House and um, and Buckingham Palace and so on. Um, and I think I think... Uh, one of the shocking things about about 1975 is just how much impact that sort of lingering relationship, that that, that incomplete severance of our post-colonial sort of um, uh, existence, uh, 
how much damage that done, how significant it was. Um, and, and we ought to move past that and make that severance final. Um, so it operates really on two levels. Um, the fact that uh, occur, uh, uh, occur acted on what were called um, the reserve powers of the Crown, the residual reserve powers of the Crown, um, was only possible because of that um, connection on a, on a constitutional level, still back to, to, the, to the way in which those powers had originally emanated. They're not powers that are available to the Queen any longer or the monarch, and yet they remain in a sort of residual form in our Governor General, although that's contested. But secondly, you see real and more current power through the lasting embargo over these letters that the Queen had. They were, they were closed by the Queen's embargo in our own national archives. So we, are, um, we do need to move forward to a republic that will sever those bounds once and for all. It doesn't sever our historical connection. It doesn't change the fact that we have a clear history with the United Kingdom that we can't ever, ever walk away from. But it does mean that we... Uh, control our own um, political structures and our, our own matters of governance far more clearly. Um, and that's what I would like us to, us to move to. I think we've got a lot of work to do to put forward a model that bridges the two very different views of how that republic might look. But I think it's possible um, with goodwill to get there. Mm. Thank you so much, Jenny, and they're excellent points. And uh, I do wish you all the best with the book that is coming out uh, very soon through Scribe Publications, and it's called The Palace Letters. And also thank you just so much today for sharing your great insights with us. Oh, it's been a great pleasure, Amy. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.